we went to Texas for our family vacation this week, um, or this year, and we spent basically the entire week in the ocean just getting beat up by waves and, and cooked by the sun. I got burned, which um, I don't normally do, which uh, was fun, and, uh, and we loved every minute of it. We had an absolute blast. And after the second day in the water, um, my oldest daughter, Hannah, and I got to talking, and we were like, we need to come at night. So we need to skip the let us come at night. This would be so amazing at night, you know, under the stars and everything. And uh, so we checked the beach, and the beach didn't have any rules, because this is Texas, and Texas lets you do anything. You can just drive right into the water if you want. They don't even care. And so we're in Texas, and they're like, uh, you know, there's no hours. You can just come anytime. So we drive. So one night we get ready, get uh, two of my other daughters together, and we go down to the beach at night. We put the little kids to bed, help clean up after dinner, and then we went in the pitch black out to the beach. And there was campfires set up along the beach, and it was beautiful. We pulled up right to the water. And... Uh, and we were going to go out and, and play in the water in the middle of the night. And we, we only left us about 10 minutes. Hannah got, like, up to her knees and was like, I'm not going out there. Like, completely chickened out. And uh, so she went up to take night pictures. And, and uh, Eve and I kind of, I don't think Becca swam, Eve and I kind of went out. And, and, uh, and we got out there, and I learned that a huge part of swimming in the ocean is, like, observation. Like you are constantly watching when to stiffen against a wave, when to like kind of jump with the water when it's moving. And, and I learned just how much of, of uh, playing in the ocean is about, you know, attention span, like keeping your attention on the water. You never, ever just relax. And, and at night, you can't see any of that. And it is scary. Like, you're out there like, I have no idea if I'm about to get hit by a huge wave or what's happening here. And so, um, Eve's having a ball. She's loving it. And I had to, so we reached the point when, like, my anxiety hit, and I was like, Eve, I'm worried about Hannah. We better go on back up and, and, uh, and find her. And, you know, we only spent, like, ten minutes completely freaked out, but I didn't want to admit to Eve that I was scared. So we, we saved Hannah is what we did. Um, but I learned, I learned yet again the important function of vision, which we're going to talk about a little bit today. You have to have eyes to see what's going on around you. We're actually continuing this morning our series about unity. Um, and so far we've looked kind of in detail at the one time the church really got it right. Uh, we walked through um, the very first church council and, uh, and from Acts 15, and we broke down what they did um, to sort out this major kind of theological debate uh, that was kind of tearing the church apart in such a way that it actually grew closer as a church uh, in this, through this potentially divisive process. Um, then we kind of hopscotch through the entire book of 1 Corinthians um, and how this Greek church um, was beginning to divide over which church leader they preferred, uh, you know, which, which big name, which big kind of uh, star pastor they resonated with. And, and, uh, and, but the real kind of revelation from this book was the way um, once Paul started to kind of dig into all their issues, the way this idea of division was the root of all of them. It was the root of all their issues. That they were dividing over stupid things. Whether it was dividing over, you know, your preferred leader or your preferred, you know, whether or not you were injured by somebody, personal injury um, or offense, somebody hurt somebody's feelings, or, or just dividing by gender or socioeconomic status or who had the cooler spiritual gifts. And at the root of all of this was this kind of lack of unity. And so Paul's addressing it in every issue, that they are one body, one church, and they need to see themselves that way. And then last week we looked at this statement by Jesus, that the evidence that we are supposed to present to unbelievers, is the real proof that we're to submit is our love for one another. To this curious and desperate world, what we're supposed to offer them is love. That they would look in and see how much we love each other. And the church has not done a great job of this. And so, uh, and so we, we then looked at how seriously the early church took this. You know, they, they, they believed that the fruit uh, of a believer's life was supposed to be love. And, uh, and, and then we talked about just how simple that fruit really is. Well, so far we've looked at, at this topic kind of from the 30,000 foot view, kind of it's been a little bit dry, a little bit theological. We've covered a lot of verses, a lot of scriptures, a little bit academic. But 
Uh, and honestly, I've been driving the same point repeatedly for three weeks now. And I can seriously do this for like another six weeks. If I would love to sit down and talk through the, the hundreds, maybe even thousands of verses throughout the scripture that talk about the fact that unity is a primary biblical theme. And to sacrifice that for the sake of theology or doctrine is to have bad theology or doctrine. If, to, to sacrifice unity because somebody's got some doctrine wrong means that you don't take seriously the doctrine of unity. It is a biblical principle that is driven home over and over and over and over again. So to, to say we divided over something theological is an oxymoron. What you did was break theology to follow a different theology. Um, so though I would love to, to just drill that topic and all of its theological realities for weeks and weeks and weeks, I feel like it's time to start zooming in a bit um, uh, and figure out what this kind of abstract concept of unity looks like right here at Open Table. So I'm going to start today kind of at 30,000 feet. We're going to come in for a landing a little bit. By the end of the next week, it's going to be about how we live this out uh, at Open Table um, right here in Wellsville, Kansas. Um, last week, we started in John 13, uh, this statement that uh, about love being the real evidence of mature discipleship. Uh, and we're actually going back to that same conversation, uh, that same evening, that same point in history to start our discussion this morning. Um, this is Jesus' final night with his disciples. Uh, this is um, right before he, like, like literally minutes before he gets arrested. Um, it's kind of an interesting conversation that ends in Jesus' longest and most detailed prayer. Uh, which we're going to talk a little bit about. And the reason that it's interesting is because Jesus knows what's about to happen, um, and he's trying to kind of prepare his disciples uh, for that reality while also staying weirdly cryptic. Um, the, Jesus tells his disciples everything they need to know, and they don't get any of it. We're actually going to talk about that for a second. Um, it's, it's one of the almost comical things about this conversation when you, when you take a big, uh, wide look at it. But it's not until after Jesus' death that they get any of this. Um, when Jesus is actually talking to them, they're clueless. Um, when you actually read Jan's, John's transcript of this conversation, it's, uh, it's a little comical how confused and almost frustrated the disciples were during this entire talk. Uh, and yet I'm sure um, the reason John included this in his book, even though I doubt he understood a word of it when it, when it was happening, was because he wrote this 40 years later. And looking back, it would have been like, oh my goodness, he gave us everything. He laid it all out. It was all right there. And so I think he included it for us because by the time he wrote it, it made way, way, way more sense. Um, and we don't have time to work through this entire conversation. I wish we did, but it's like four full chapters long. Um, so we can't. Uh, but uh, I do want to set this up a little bit. Jesus starts um, this whole talk, this whole conversation with his disciples, with this enigmatic statement, as soon as Judas left the room, Jesus said, The time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory, and God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives glory because of the Son, he will give his own glory to the Son, and he will do so at once. Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I'm going. <laughs> so this passage makes sense to us so far because of where we sit. We know he's talking about his death and resurrection and God's going to glorify him through the resurrection and, and all this, but there's just absolutely no way they could have had a clue what he was talking about. And, uh, um, and you know, from where they sit, this would have sounded very, very bizarre. Especially once you know that they were kind of expecting this military leader to show up, this guy that was going to like stand up for Israel and kick off Roman oppression and, and really go to war here. I mean, Peter, when he goes in the garden, pulls his sword like he's ready to fight. And Jesus is like, what are you doing? You missed the whole point of this thing. Um, but after telling them that he was giving them this new commandment, so right after that, he, he gives the passage we talked about last week. So I now give you a new commandment to love one another so the world knows you're my disciples. And right after that, Peter has this kind of weird moment where he vows to die for Jesus if he has to. Um, he's like, you're not going anywhere without me. Even if I have to die, I'm with you. And, uh, and, and so imagine you're Peter. As far as you can tell, you are all in. You are, you are, um, you're, you are ready to go. And Jesus is like, nah, before the night's over, you're going to deny me three times. Like, you're not even, before morning, you know, you're going to run. 
and you're like, I don't think so. Like, you're pretty positive you're in, right? Has anybody ever felt that way? Like, I'm totally committed. And then one little thing happens. You're like, hold on, I need a second to think. Hold on. Hold on. Like, that's kind of where Peter's at. He's like, I'm all in. Jesus like, you're not all in. And, but Peter doesn't even know that, that he's not all in. Um, so you simply could not be any more positive that you're committed to die for Jesus. Um, you just spent three years watching this guy do amazing things and prove that he is the Messiah. And so you are as in as you possibly could be. And Jesus tells you you're about to run scared. <laughs> so, but before Peter gets a chance to freak out and ask for details, because it just goes straight from this to the next thing, Jesus is like, no, before morning you're going to deny me three times. And, uh, and then Jesus immediately jumps back in with this. Don't let your heart be troubled. He's like, Peter, calm down. Don't let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There's more than enough. If you want to track with me, I'm, I'm in like John, beginning John 14 now, if you want to jump in and follow in your Bible. I'm going to throw the verses that, that we're going to talk about, but if you want to kind of track, I'm in John 14. Um, in your own uh, Bible or app. Um, don't let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my Father's house. If this were not so, would I have told you that I was going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I'll come and get you, that you will be, that you will always be with me where I am, and you will know the way to where I am going. So Jesus says, relax, calm down. Things are going to get spooky here for a minute, um, but everything's going to be fine. Once I get things set up, I will come back for you. And this sounds so normal to us. This is our language. Jesus coming again. He's preparing a place for us. Like, we're so used to this language. Um, but the disciples are lost, and Thomas is the one who actually kind of described bluntly just how lost they are. He says, no, we don't know. <laughs> what are you talking about? We have no clue. We have no idea where you're going. So how can we know the way? Like, so Thomas kind of shows us where the disciples are at this point. Jesus is like, relax, you know where I'm going? You know what's happening? Thomas is like, no, 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 no. Stop saying that. We have no clue where you're going or how to get there. I love Thomas so much. Every time he speaks in the Gospels, I feel like he's like speaking from my heart. Like, you know, the one time when all the disciples like, Jesus came back. And he's like, unless I stick my finger in his hand and my hand in his side, I am not going to believe. I get that. Like, I, I, I love Thomas. Um, so every time he speaks in the Gospels, Thomas is speaking for me. But he basically tells Jesus that everything he says sounds like gibberish. Like he's like, I don't understand a word of what you're saying. I have no clue where you're going. I don't know how to get there. And Jesus, this is where Jesus makes his famous statement in John 14, 6, that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He's like, I, the way? Thomas is like, I don't know the way. He's like, I'm the way. You stick close to me. I'm the way. Uh, nobody comes to the Father but by me. And then Philip jumps in and, uh, and introduces yet another major miscommunication in this conversation. He says, uh, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Like, if you just show us God, we'll be happy. Jesus replies, have, have, uh, have I been with you so long, Philip, and you still don't know who I am? Like, he's like, dude, are you guys getting this at all? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, so why are you asking me to show him to you? So let's recap real quick. Jesus says, my time has come. Peter says, I'm coming along. Jesus like, no, you're not. You're clearly not getting it. Peter confesses his extreme devotion, and Jesus is wrong. You're, you're going to leave me. Jesus tells everyone that he's going, and he's going to get things ready, and he'll be back. Thomas jumps in, fed up, and confesses that he has no idea what Jesus is talking about. Then Philip finally jumps in and, and reveals that they've been completely missing the mark on everything up to this point. So they'll be kind of tracking with the way this conversation is moving so far. Jesus is saying a bunch of things, and the disciples are not getting any of it. So... Uh, can you feel how uncomfortable this conversation is getting at this point? That Jesus keeps talking and the disciples keep revealing just how dumb they are. Again, I get it. Um, so, this night uh, obviously made more sense to John later. And he looked back on it and was like, oh my goodness, Jesus laid it all out so clear and we missed it. Uh, so he includes it in this uh and it's including just how frustrated they were, like just, just how little they were uh, getting this. John includes all of that. So let me say this. If you ever feel lost, like none of this makes sense, and 
and uh, and you know, and most of this gibberish going over your head. You're in the right place. That's that's probably a decent mark of being a disciple. As as I am, I have no idea what's happening, but I'm hanging on tight to Jesus. That is discipleship 101. Well done. Um, because the disciples, that's where they were. They were lost and yet completely enamored with this person. Like I am, all I know is. You are amazing, and I want to be close to you. I don't get anything you're saying, but I'm in. I'm because I'm enamored with you, Jesus. Um, so this gap that, that Philip um, kind of kicks off, uh, where we want to start um, to settle in for a minute this morning, because Jesus answers uh, again in a language that they would have been used to, um, and that something that sounds normal to us. That uh, me and the Father, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. You know, we're used to that. Um, but to a first century Jew, that would have been troublesome. And that's what we're actually going to unpack. Jesus answers Philip um, this way. He says, uh, have you been uh, with me all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me, does this work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Now, we're going to come back to this statement, um, because this is huge, and it's it's really the whole thing. Um, But I want to establish first that this final teaching that Jesus gives his followers doesn't get any easier to understand for them from here. The next time the disciples speak, they say this, um, Judas, not Iscariot, but the other disciple with that name, said to him, Lord, why are you going to reveal yourself only to us? This is every single time the disciples speak in this conversation. Why are you going to reveal yourself only to us and not also to the world at large? Still confused. Still have no idea what he's talking about. The next time the disciples speak, some of the disciples ask each other, what does this mean when you say a little while you'll be with you and then, uh, then you'll see me and then I'm going to be with the Father? What does it mean a little while? We don't understand. So... That's the next time they speak. And my favorite part is that when they started to figure things out, when they're starting to feel like they get it, when they're starting to, to feel like they're tracking, this is the very next time they speak. Then his disciples said, at last you are speaking plainly and not figuratively. Now we understand that you know everything and there is no need to question you. From this we believe that you came from God. So the disciples are like, fine, this is late. This is like, we started in chapter 13, we're now toward the end of chapter 16. So they've been confused for a long time now. Now we get it, now we're finally getting it. Here's Jesus' response. Do do you finally believe? (laughs) But but the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when you're going to be scattered, each one to his own way, leaving me all alone. So even now they don't get it. He's like, they're like, we finally get it. He's like, no, you don't get it. Just, Just relax. So. Even once they think they know what's going on, Jesus seems to respond almost laughingly. Do you seriously feel like you know something? Um, that they have no idea what tomorrow holds. At this point, they have no idea what's coming the next day. And I think that's, that's important to us. Because there are times we feel so confident. We feel like we know it all. We've got it figured out. We know what's happening. And we have no idea what tomorrow holds. And, and just how much everything can be turn on its head. So please know that this kind of lengthy and intimate teaching that Jesus gave his disciples on the night of his arrest, it's a long talk. Like This is like four or five chapters of Jesus just with his closest friends kind of unpacking some really important stuff. And, um, and they, they didn't get a word of it. And, and, but it was still important because they got it later. Like Once everything played out, that information became so valuable and so important. And honestly, a lot of our theology is shaped on that conversation that the disciples did not understand a little bit at first. And I think that that's usually the way life works. We learn stuff that seems like gibberish, and then before you know it, you're going through something, and you find yourself really needing that gibberish, really needing that stuff that, that, um, that seemed uh, like nonsense when you first heard it. Um, but I really want to do is look back at this really complicated statement that Jesus made to Philip. Uh, because for a first century Drew, Jew, this is a major statement. Jesus replied, Have I been with you all the time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? 
Do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does the works through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Now, this group of disciples um, had spent their entire lives, every single morning and every single evening, um, praying a single prayer. It was a form prayer. Every Jew prays it twice a day. Um, so the youngest of the disciples had prayed this prayer maybe 10,000 times. And the oldest, upwards of probably 21, 22,000 times, they prayed this single prayer. Uh, and the prayer is called the Shema, or the maybe the longer version of the Shema Yisrael, is, is the, the full version of this Jewish prayer that every Jew prays at least twice a day. The Shema Yisrael is, uh, and it goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. The Shema. That is the Shema. And they pray it every morning, every evening for your entire life. Uh, this prayer is the anchor of the Jewish faith. This is the center of the Jewish faith. We talked last week about some of the things that the New Testament tells us it's absolutely okay to divide over. And how kind of rudimentary they are. How kind of wide the fence is um, for, the, for the Christian faith. Stuff like... You know, if somebody is cursing Jesus or they say Jesus is a curse, yeah, you can separate from them. That's pretty rudimentary. Somebody who says Jesus didn't come in the flesh at all, yeah, they're probably not in the family. That's pretty rudimentary. The fence, there's a lot of room for debate and discussion and, and disagreement inside the fence, but the fence is pretty broad. Well, to a Jew, that's the Shema. It's the Shema. The, the, to a Jew... They're encouraged. I mean, they're probably the most debating and discussing faith on the planet. They really don't have the concept of a strict doctrinal like belief system you have to hold. Um, the, the, the whole, uh, um, uh, the words escaping me. They have a book that they read along with the Bible that's just debates. It's just different rabbis giving their opinion and arguing. The Talmud is what it's called. Um, arguing with each other. Like their faith system is built on discussion and debate. As long as you adhere to the Shema, um, to Judaism, uh, really, their only dogma is that there is only one God. And for the majority of, of, uh, of history, that was enough through the entire Old Testament. Um, and really, until Christianity, until Jesus, and then maybe 600 years later when Muhammad showed up, that was enough to separate them from everybody else. They were the only monotheistic faith on the planet. And so to make a statement, there is only one God, and his name is Yahweh, was their whole faith system. That, and then you debate on everything inside of that. But to them, their creed was the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God, and he's our God. That was their kind of central statement. So for 1,500 years, that is what defined a Jew. The Shema. So to a Jew, this essential belief, which is declared every morning, every evening, um, is that Yahweh is only one. Yahweh is one. Now, they had metaphorical language in the Old Testament to understand the concept of the Son of God. And Jesus, uh, at times, talked about being the Son of God. Uh, I don't think anybody would have understood, like, the born of a virgin concept of the Son of God that, that we're more comfortable with. But in the Old Testament, Israel several times is called the Son of God. Uh, Solomon once, because of a prophecy given to David, is referred to as the Son of God. Um, they have dozens of references to, to someone or, or someones being called the Son or the Sons of God. Uh, in fact, most Jewish scholars believe the phrase Son of God just means a human. Someone who is made in God's image, a Son of God. It's actually ironic. Son of Man is the very prophetic word in the Old Testament. It's always talking about this kind of prophetic, messianic person that's going to show up. Which is kind of ironic because as Christians, we flip those. We think the Son of God part is the miracle. And Son of Man just means Jesus is also human. To a Jew, it's the other way. Son of Man is always referring to something prophetic in the Old Testament. When they say Son of Man, they're speaking of, of the Messiah. When they say Son of God, it usually just means somebody made in God's image, a human. Um, and so... Uh, so we hear all the time when, when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of God, but that, that wouldn't have been the same to them as this statement that Jesus makes where he says, I and the Father are one. That would have been very, very challenging to, uh, to, uh, and very threatening 
to the Shema. They've prayed their entire life there's only one God. Now, there's a lot of roles that can be filled underneath that, but there's only one God. And in comes Jesus that night, the night of his arrest, um, saying there is only one God. Don't you believe that I am in the Father, the Father is in me. The words I speak are not my own, but the Father lives in me and he does the work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So the Old Testament simply does not have any context for that statement. There is no, there is no uh, context for that to exist in a world shaped by the Shema. I mean, there are hints um, all over the Old Testament um, that make a ton of sense in light of this. Once you know this, then some things in the Old Testament um, start to make sense. Like in the creation, when God says, let us make man in our image. Well, yeah, once we have Jesus in this context of Trinitarian theology, we can look back at that and go, ah, that's why he said us an hour. That makes more sense now. But no way would somebody reading that for the first time automatically assume Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Like, you needed the revelation Jesus brought to, to get that. Um, there is uh, uh, there's several times when this mysterious being shows up in the Old Testament that they just called the angel of the Lord. Um, the messenger, angel just means messenger there, the messenger of the Lord. And, and oftentimes that messenger speaks in the first person. I will bless you. I will do this for you. I will, you know. And, and so there's this weird first person language that you're like, why doesn't this angel say God will bless you? Well, we believe now that's probably a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. That Jesus came and said, I will, I will. Um, we call it a, a pre-incarnate Christophany, if you want the theological term. Um, nerd word for the day. Um, but, uh, but... Uh, so there's, there's all these kind of references in the Old Testament to the Trinity, but nothing clear. And so to a group of people that spent every single day, twice a day, reminding themselves there's only one God. Um, John, this, this statement in John 14 would have been very, very difficult to understand. So we have to put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples, listening to Jesus with a lifetime of praying the Shema, driving God's monotheism deep into their guts. And Jesus' statement about being in the Father and the Father being in him, um, that, uh, and this is the same God who told Solomon, I can't be contained in a temple. I can't be contained in the whole world. Like, and now Jesus said, no, he's in me. He's right in here. So just imagine how hard this would have been for the disciples to grasp. So even though the Father's words um, were the very words that formed the universe, Jesus is saying, no, those words are in me. Those are the words I'm speaking. Um, and so, these poor Jewish guys uh, didn't stand a chance of actually receiving and understanding this message this night. Like, this is, this is too much. Um, which is obviously evidenced by every word they say in the middle of this conversation. That they are not understanding any of this. Um, and, as if it, uh, and if it seems like Jesus' words are an attack on the Shema, is that that wasn't enough. Right after making the statement to Philip, Jesus says this, If you love me, obey my commands. And that sounds totally normal to us. We actually say it all the time. And this is kind of fun because this is actually from the Shema as well. Um, the Shema uh, is, is the name of the prayer uh, because it's the first word. Shema in the Hebrew just means listen. And listen, O Israel. Listen. Um, Shema. Shema, O Israel, which, um, which is why they call this the Shema. Not very creative. Anyway, um, so the, the prayer actually starts, Shema Yisrael, listen, O Israel. Uh, except the word Shema is interesting in the Hebrew, um, which we have to, I don't like doing a lot of uh, ancient languages, but it's kind of fun to every now and then. Because um, it does speak of the mechanics of hearing, sound waves going into the ears, that's Shema. Um, and so you, you might say, did you Shema what I just said? Did you hear me? Uh, but it also means to pay attention or to, to see. Um, Leah named one of her sons Simon, which is Shimon. Shimon, Shimon is his real name, which means. And she says it's because the Lord has noticed, the Lord has Shimad, uh, that I am unloved. So she named him unloved. <laughs> it's terrible. Um, or no, she noticed, I guess. The Lord has noticed that I am unloved. So she named him the Lord sees, or the Lord notices me. So that's also Shema. Um, but the real important uh, piece of, of Shema 
uh, is that it's used to speak to the way we respond to what we hear is also Shema. Um, so in Exodus 19, it says, God says, if you Shema me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you'll be my treasured possession. Not just if you hear me, but if you like respond to what you hear. If you Shema me, you'll be my people. So, um, if I'm in the Hebrew, there's no separate word for listen and obey. They're actually the same word. There is no Hebrew word for obey. It's Shema. You, you hear and, and obey. Um, this is why the prophets would say, they, they, though they have ears, they do not Shema. You know, they might hear, they might hear with their ears, though they have the ears to hear, they don't Shema. They don't obey. They don't, they don't respond to what they hear. Anybody have parents who say, now you listen to me. They didn't mean here, <laughs> right? They meant, like, you better obey what I'm telling you. You know, you better mind me. You know, you better Shema, is what they were saying. You know, it's way more than just hear what I'm telling you. It means you better respond appropriately to what you are hearing. You better listen, right? So, um, although John wrote in Greek, so we don't really know what word Jesus would have chosen here. Jesus most likely spoke a version of Aramaic. Um, most likely, when he was what he was saying here um, was that they needed to Shema. If you love me, you will Shema. You will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will Shema what I have told you. Um, so he's speaking again to this equivalent that's in the Shema, which says, Hear, O Israel, Lord our God is one Lord, and as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind. What does Jesus say? If you love me, you will Shema. Shema Yisrael. Love the Lord your God. Jesus kind of flips and goes, If you love me, you will Shema. Right? So he's speaking straight out of this, this prayer that these guys prayed every single day. So, when the Shema Yisrael... Um, he says, here, listen, obey. Obey, O Israel, the Lord your God is, is one, and you shall love him. So, um, we can see the link right there in the prayer that every Jew prayed twice a day between love and obedience. That, that in the Old Testament, love and obedience go together. Uh, that if you Shema, you will love the Lord your God. If you love me, you will Shema. Love and obedience are linked all through the Scripture. Now, remember, though I believe with all my heart John understood this, when he wrote this Gospel, he had figured this out. He had had time to, this is 40 years later. Um, none of the disciples had any idea what Jesus was talking about. They were mostly lost. But John is writing from a later vantage point, um, desperately wanting us to see this and know this information. Um, and because he goes deeper into this discussion than any other gospel writer. He's the one that really unpacks this last evening. Everybody else kind of tells about the meal. Then Jesus went straight to the garden and prayed. Blah, blah, blah. John kind of unpacks it for us and opens it up for us. He goes deeper into the... And he's also the one New Testament writer that goes the most deep into love and how important love is. He just talks about it nonstop uh, more than any other biblical writer. But after Jesus basically plugs himself into the Shema by claiming equality with God. I'm in the Father. The Father's in me. Remember, hero Israel, there's only one God. And Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm him. I'm, I am that, that one. After plugging himself into the Shema by claiming equality with God and saying that if we love him, we will Shema. We will listen and obey his commandment. Um, then he talks about the Holy Spirit showing up. That's immediately where he goes in the conversation. And, and I have to leave so the, so the Comforter can come. That's where he goes. So we're, we're starting to, to see right here, just before Jesus leaves, this full kind of Trinitarian nature of God for, for one of the first times kind of being unfolded in a very kind of blunt and blatant way. Um, so basically what Jesus has done here is he's reinforced the Shema only the true Shema with, with a, the Trinitarian nature of God inserted. Hear, O Israel, Shema, O Israel, the Lord is one, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, and you should love Shema, Him. Love, obey, Shema, Him. Now here's why I bring all this up. That was kind of a lot of nerd work, but here's why I bring um, all of that up. After Jesus gives this lengthy speech to His disciples, most of which they didn't understand at all, he breaks out in this prayer 
that he prays right in front of them, which is always awkward. You're right, someone just start praying for you, and you're like, hold on, i got to get warmed up. Like, yeah, it, <laughs> one of my best friends, he actually died in a car like 18 years ago, but one of my best friends, um, when he was little, and he told this story forever, when he was little, he went to go into his mom's room to ask her a question, and she was on her knees praying, and she prayed, God, if my sons are not going to follow you, would you please just take them out now? Just, just. I think she must have known he was coming, but... But he was like, that's the scariest prayer I've ever heard. She was just praying that God would kill me. And if you know, if you knew Nino, it was, it was fitting. But, yeah, she was praying, God, if my sons aren't going to follow you and live with you all their days, just take them out now. I just, I don't even want to. He was like, that changed my life. Yeah. So, yeah, people praying for you can, can be disturbing. Um, anyway, that was a side note. Uh, after that, Jesus prays this. After saying all these things, he just immediately transitions. He's been talking. They've said very few things, most of which just to reveal how lost they are. Um, and Jesus has been talking, talking, talking. And, but this is how John transitions. After saying all these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so he can uh, give glory back to you. And I don't want to spend a long time reading the entire prayer, but I do recommend you go home and read John 17. It's a... It's, it's a deep and rich prayer. Be ready to meditate on it. Don't try to understand it the very first time through. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on, but dig into it and give it some time to work on you. Um, but Jesus prays about his mission and especially about finishing his mission. Well, God, I've, I've taken the ones you gave me and I didn't lose any and I'm, uh, I'm now offering them back to you and so on and so forth. Um, and he talks about, you know, that he doesn't want them removed from danger and pain. That's kind of a bummer part of the prayer. He's like, I'm not asking you to take them out of this trouble. I'm just asking you to keep them strong while they're in it. Not my favorite prayer, but that's what God, that's what Jesus prays. And then he makes this statement um, to specifically make um, the point that he's kind of transitioning in this prayer. He says, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also those who will ever believe in me through their message. So that's us. He's now transitioned. He's talking about us. He says, and right after making this qualifying statement, um, this is what Jesus prays. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they also be in us, so that the world will believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. We talked about this last week, about how Jesus told his disciples that he was giving them a new commandment uh, to love one another. And that this commandment would be the evidence that the world would need to believe that the people um, really were Jesus followers. And now we have Jesus talking to his father just moments before Judas shows up. So this is like final words before Jesus shows up with the soldiers. And, And he's praying that that command will stick. So he told his disciples, I'm giving you one command. Go love each other. And then he turns to God and goes, God, help them do it. Help them love each other. Um, help them to follow through. May they experience this perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me. But the, the piece of this prayer that really jumps out at me is this one. I pray that they will be one, just as you and I are one. And you are in me, Father, and I am in you. That they may be in us so that the world will know that we believe now. Just like Jesus commanded his disciples, and then he prayed for it. Jesus also makes a statement to Philip that that he and the Father are one, that he's in the Father, the Father's in him, they are inseparable. He's praying for, for, now he's praying for unity based on that Trinitarian, Trinitarian experience. That we would be in God, and God would somehow be in us, and that we would be in each other, uh, it, as the very body of Christ, and that that unity would be the very relational glue that holds, uh, almost like that unity is that's the very relational glue that holds the Trinity together. He, he ties our understanding of unity to the relationship that the Trinity 
has with each other. Just like I am in you and you are in me and we are inseparable because we are one. Let them be one. That's, that's crazy language. And if this makes any sense to you, then you are missing something. <laughs> because uh, before we can move on, I'm going to give you Augustine's definition of the Trinity. Augustine, St. Augustine, one of my favorite uh, theologians, said, if you want to believe in the Trinity, all you have to do is acknowledge seven truth statements. If you just believe these seven truth statements, then you, you get the Trinity. And those are, one, the Father is God. Two, the Son is God. Three, the Spirit is God. Four, the Father is not the Son or Spirit. Five, the Son is not the Father or Spirit. Six, the Spirit is not the Father or Son. And seven, there's only one God. That's all you got to believe. That's it. And then you get it. Now you get it. Now we all get it. <laughs> and Jesus said that that is what unity amongst believers is supposed to be like. Just like that. Piece of cake. But that's what Jesus said. We are to, to, to have the same kind of unity and connection and oneness that the Trinity has. Just like I'm in you and you are in me. Let them be in each other and be in us. Just like they're connected, we're supposed to be connected. And here's why I think this is important. This is where we're going to start coming in for a landing. Okay, we're, we're done up here. Now we're coming back down. The reason I think this is important is as... As we try to emulate what the early church did in Acts 15, and, and as much as we want to take Paul's letter to the Corinthians seriously, and especially what it has to say about division, and as much as we are um, want the world to know that we're Jesus' disciples, unity is a mystery. It is, a, it is as mysterious as, as the Trinity, and has to be. And, and I don't mean in terms of hard to understand. I mean in the classic theological sense of mystery. The uh, unity is like the Trinity in that, in that the more you try and describe it and command it and strive for it, the, the farther it gets from you. A mystery is something you, you grasp and you meditate on and you believe, even though it may never make sense to you. Unity is that way. Over the past few weeks, we've had several, I've had several conversations with people as we've been talking about unity, and it, and it starts to bring up, yeah, but what about this person? What about that person? Like, I've got someone at work that believes this, and I've got a, a sister who believes that, and, and there's 38,000 denominations. Like, who? I'm supposed to just be a, like, but, but they believe that, and they do this, and what about all this? What does this mean to everyone's dreams of a unified church? And I get that, that it brings up all of these questions. What about, what about, what about? And we could do the same thing with the Trinity. Yeah, but if there's only one God, then how is there? It's a mystery. But, as hard as we try to cling to these realities, as soon as you move toward unity, a thousand questions will pop up. A thousand what ifs, a thousand what abouts. I've had so many conversations with people about this person, that belief system, and is this too far? Is that too far? Group by group, doctrine by doctrine, lifestyle by lifestyle. And honestly, I feel inept to answer any of those questions. Almost as inept as I do to talk about the Trinity. I just believe the Trinity. I don't have a clue how it works. I just believe it. And the ancients, the ancients used to call this a mystery. The spiritual truth that defies logic and simply needs to be believed and meditated on and lived in. So how does how we become a unified church if church unity can't even be understood? And it's a mystery like the Trinity or like the ocean at night when the lights are gone. Luckily, Jesus gives us the answer to that question. He used the Shema. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. And the problem is, we hear that. We hear rules and, and regulations and be a moral person. Don't watch R-rated movies or use cuss words or drink beer or litter. And though I hate littering, I think Jesus is very specific. He didn't catch that one. I think Jesus is very specific about what he's actually talking about here. Remember, Jesus started the speech off by telling his disciples he has a new command to love one another. So I'm giving you this new command, love each other. Then a little bit later, little bit later in the same speech, he connects it to the Shema. If you obey my commands, you'll remain in my love. If you obey my Father's commands, you'll remain in His love. 
Now, there's an interesting thing, and it's a little frustrating in the Greek, is that command is not a plural or singular word. It's like saying deer. It can be one deer or ten deer. Command is the same way. So we, or commandment is the same way. So we say commandments. It's translated plural there. It could also be commandment, singular, just as easily in the Greek language. There's nothing that makes it plural. They just assumed it was plural. Except right after that, Jesus says, in case, almost like he's saying, in case you've forgotten already, he said, this is my commandment. Love each other. And then five verses later, this is my command. Love each other. <laughs> in case you're not getting this, if you love me, you'll obey my command. Here's my command. Love each other. If you love me, you will love each other. It's that simple. So here's the thing. We're faced with a passage that's a mystery. And the Father's in Jesus. Jesus and the Father, just like they're connected in this weird thing called the Trinity. We're supposed to be connected. Blah, blah, And it, we can get lost in that. But Jesus said, if you love me, Shema, my commandments. My commandment is love each other. So whatever, wherever you're head is or who you're wondering should, 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 do I have to be connected to that person do I have to be in unity with that person do I have to, to love the, this group of people my advice is simple love, just love them don't try to figure it out don't try to understand it if you try too hard to figure out the trinity you're going to hurt your brain it's not healthy, it's not good for you just believe it and obey it's the same thing with unity yeah we can't understand it all, we can't know when someone has gone too far when they're not gone too far but we can love we can obey we can say I am I'm going to obey because I love God Jesus didn't say if you love me you'll understand all of this his disciples didn't understand a word of it at the time he didn't say if you love me you'll be able to figure this out and who's in and who's out and who's on the team and who's not he didn't say if you love me you'll agree on every theological issue but Jesus says if you love me He'll obey my command, and my command is to love others. Period. If we wait for unity to make sense, we will never obey Jesus' command to love one another. If we wait till we get it, if we wait till we know who we're supposed to love and who we're not and who it's okay, we'll never get it. So how do we respond to this? I'm going to try to move fast. I got kids back there waiting. Am I long again? Yeah. I'm trying. I'm even skipping stuff. There's this picture of the early church that drives almost everything I do. It's in chapter 2 of the book of Acts. It's one of those little snapshots that Luke gives us. All the believers devoted themselves and the, to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and sharing their meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over all of them. The apostles performed miracles and signs and wonders and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold property and possessions and shared the money with people in need. They worshipped together in the temple each day and they met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared their meals with great joy and generosity and all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. This is my dream. This is my vision right here. Like I said at the beginning, I don't function well without vision. I don't function well if I can't see. And I think it's what Jesus is commanding his disciples to create. And what he prayed to his father for just minutes before being arrested. And I love Sundays. I get all the warm fuzzies when I come in here and everybody's in here and I'm hugging people and giving handshakes. And I love seeing everybody's faces. I even love seeing the names line up of the old fam and it's my favorite day of the week I love worshiping confessing and praying and laughing and preaching and blessing kids and giving high fives and the whole thing it's my favorite part of my entire week and I love how exhausted I am afterwards from talking for an hour straight if you've ever gotten stuck on the phone with me you know that a quick conversation is not something that happens I have an endless supply of words except Sunday after church there's like two hours that I can barely talk and Betty usually texts me like her thoughts after church and she gets like one word answers I feel terrible because I'm like I have no more words I'm empty I use them all I love so much about Sunday mornings and yet this is such a small piece of the dream in Acts 2 
They were eating together. They were in each other's homes. They were sharing what they had with each other. They were praying with each other and marveling together at all the things God was doing. One of my favorite things about my conversations with Reg is the way he checks in and tells me about all the crazy conversations he has at work or with his neighbors or with people he bumps into or people who call him out of the blue. And it almost always ends with, I have no idea what God is doing, but I'm excited about it. And I love that, just marveling at what God is doing. Like I say, Betty texts me every Sunday her thoughts and stories that pop in her head while I'm preaching. And I love that. Allison's been coming over for dinner once a week, and 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 it took about a, ten minutes before she felt like she'd always been there and should always be there. And I love that. I love she feels like family. That's the way it should be. But there's a, a great deal of this dream on Acts 2 that we cannot accomplish on Sunday mornings. That's one of the reasons we're leaning so hard into small groups right now. We had a small group leaders meeting on Friday, and it was so good. We looked at some scripture, and we laughed, and we cried. Jess started it, so don't blame me. Um, I told embarrassing stories that I never would have gotten away with it. My wife was there. That was fun. When I told Brett, I was like, I can't wait till that makes it into a sermon. Which she has forbidden me to do, but we'll see. We'll see. And we had a great time loving each other, and I want that for everybody. I want that for everybody. Here's the thing about OTCC. We believe this passage, that our love for one another is what is going to uh, draw people. We believe that our love is, is what's supposed to convince the world that we're Jesus' disciples. We believe this passage from Acts, that this is what the church is supposed to look like. And it ends with, and the Lord added to their numbers, those who are being saved. We don't have a growth strategy here. We don't have a plan to draw people and grow our church. We don't have a marketing scheme. We don't have any advertising plans. We want to be a blessing to the town and the surrounding area, and maybe that is a little bit, maybe that draws some people. I don't know. But our, our only growth strategy is love. Our only growth strategy is to try to create something that's so real and so beautiful that people want to be a part of it. That's, our only, that's the only growth strategy we have. We don't have, a, we don't have anything else. We're not trying to, to, to bait and hook people in here. We're not trying to market our way to a bigger church. We just want to create what they had in Acts 2 and work toward that. And we believe that if we do, people are going to want that. People are going to want to be closer to Jesus and people who love them. They're going to want to belong to something and, and know that they're, they're loved. They need connection and mystery. And, and I think when we create that, God will send them. So the way I would love to respond to this message is take one step toward that. Whatever that may be. If it's joining a small group, dive in. Do it. If you're even thinking about it, do it. If, it, if, you, if you know you're not ready for that, uh, but you need some people to connect to, reach out to me. We'll create some new story girl groups. Or if, you, if you're in a story girl group and you haven't reached out in a while, reach out. Do something to start building that connection. I promise it will do you good. Money back guarantee. If it doesn't work, I'll give you all your money back. No, if you're a big tither, I'm not going to give you your money back. I'm not... I just thought through that, but better not do that. If you aren't ready for that, invite somebody over, have dinner with somebody, do something to create more connection and more love. Amen? Let's take a step forward. Let's go to the table.